Good morning again. Good to see everybody. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 21. If you're new with us, good to see you. We are working our way through John's Gospel, taking us a little while, but we're almost done. And we plan to go right into the book of Acts after John, unless the Lord has other ideas. So uh, pray about that. But um, we have come to the final chapter in John's Gospel, an epilogue, if you will, a postscript which John inserted so that his readers will know what happened to Peter. I mean, last time we really saw Peter in John's Gospel, he was denying the Lord three times and went out, wept bitterly, isolated himself for the three days Jesus was in the tomb. And um, John wants us to know what happened to his good friend Peter. Remember, James, John, Peter, and Andrew, two groups of brothers, uh, had a fishing business up in the Galilee, and so they were good friends. And so John wants to tell us that, hey, uh, Peter was restored after his denial. The Lord restored him to his apostleship, and that's what chapter 21 uh, is all about. If we didn't have it, uh, end of the book, turn to Acts, we'd wonder, how come Peter so prominent as a leader in the church in these first 12 chapters of Acts? Well, because he was restored. But in every historical um, story in the Bible, whether you talk about old or new, God always has underlying principles that we can mine, we can glean, that will help us in our daily lives. So not only does this chapter teach us some very important lessons about Peter, it teaches us some very important lessons about true love, God's love. What it looks like and how it works its way out into our lives, uh, works its way out from our lives to the people around us as we touch them with God's love. And so, guys, this section is defining true love from God's perspective and could be applied to any relationship in your life, whether it's your children, uh, your friends, uh, co-workers, but especially, I think, it um, should be applied to our marriages, our marriages. So last week, we read the first 14 verses and looked at those. Today, uh, I just want to read the first three, all right, first three verses of John 21, after these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, another way of saying the Sea of Galilee, and in this way he showed himself. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to him, we are going with you also. Now, as we said last week, uh, I don't think that Peter was trying to have an act afternoon of just a little relaxation. I think what he's actually saying is, I'm going back to fishing. That's my take on it. I think that what Peter is saying, guys, it's been a great three and a half years. Um, awesome, really. But we don't know where Jesus is. We haven't seen him for a while. And I think it's time to come to the reality that we need to go back to our old lives, to our careers. I'm going fishing. The first point of this outline in this last section of John's Gospel, chapter 21, we started last week. I want to finish it this week. It's the biggest of the four points. I think it's probably, well, I couldn't say the most important, but very important. And I just a, a main point I'm calling true love is not words, it's commitment. 
True love is not words, it's a commitment. Now, just by way of review a little bit, Peter had verbalized his love for and commitment to Jesus on the night before his crucifixion in the upper room. It was then that he made a promise to Jesus that he would be loyal to him, even if it cost Peter his life. Remember, though they, they slay me, I will not deny you, right? John 13. And yet we all know that for all Peter's good intentions, and I believe he was sincere, for all his good intentions, we know that he uh, failed to keep that promise. He wanted to, uh, but wasn't. the spirit was willing, the flesh was weak. But guys, true love, and whenever I say true love, you know I'm talking about God's love, doesn't just tell people you love them with words only. It has to be demonstrated through commitment, faithfulness, loyalty, and so on. But you see, even before Peter promised Jesus that he was going to be loyal to him and not deny him, three and a half years earlier, Peter entered into, entered into a commitment with Jesus uh, that was supposed to last for the rest of Peter's life. It was when Jesus first called Peter to leave his fishing business and to follow him as one of his disciples, promising Peter that he would make him and the other disciples fishers of men, fishers of men, great evangelists. And yet here in John 21, three and a half years later, we see that Peter broke that commitment by leaving the ministry and going back to fishing. Chapter 21 is where Jesus is restoring Peter. Part of the restoration process was for Jesus to teach Peter, and all of us, by extension, that saying you love someone and promising to be faithful to them, that's great. Words are important. I'm not saying they're not. But if it's not, if our words are not backed up with actions, commitment, well, then they are really meaningless. We don't have time to go there today. But the defining passage that defines God's love, we talk about God's love, you think of 1 Corinthians 13, 4 to 8. And if you study that passage, God's love is this, God's love is that. They're all verbs. Because God's love is actions, not just words. And certainly not just feelings. Now this was not only an important lesson for Peter to learn with regard to his relationship with Jesus. Listen. It's an important lesson for all of us to learn with regard to our relationships with each other, especially in marriage. Guys, a strong marriage is built on true love, which is all about sacrificial commitment where a man and a woman commit themselves to staying with each other through good times uh, and bad times in sickness and in health until death separates them. You see, feelings, which again are important in marriage, I'm not saying they're not, can't be the main thing a marriage is built upon. A marriage based on feelings is Hollywood's definition of marriage, which is why so many Hollywood marriages fail. It's all about feelings, where, look, uh, I love you because you make me feel good about myself. I like the way people look at me when I'm out in public with you on my arm. You know, you're so good looking, you make me look good. Or I like you, or I love you because of what you give to me. But look, that's feelings. And what they go on to feel, although they wouldn't verbalize it at that moment, is if the day should ever come when you stop making me feel good about myself or stop giving me things that I like, 
to enjoy. I'm going to find somebody else who will make me feel good about myself and give to me that which I feel I deserve. That's Hollywood's love. Very selfish and self-centered. God's love, agape love, is selfless and others-centered. And again, guys, I'm going to say it over and over this message. A marriage has to be built on commitment if it's going to weather the storms of life. Let me use an analogy I've used before, okay? Uh, marriage is like a ship. <laughs> Let's call it the good ship marriage. A little corny, but it does communicate the point I want to make, all right? Marriage is like a ship that a man and a woman enter into on their wedding day as they embark on a journey together for the rest of their lives. Listen. A journey that will include both sunshine and storms, both smooth sailing and rough seas. That's marriage, because it's life. How can husbands and wives stay together when the storms come and marital seas get rough? The answer is very simply commitment. Commitment. It's commitment, not feelings, that will bind you together and allow your marriage to weather the storms of life whatever those storms may be. And yet feelings have become the basis for almost everything in our culture today. We have become a, a feelings-based culture. And marriage is the main arena where these things are being played out. I hear people saying things like, I don't feel any love for him anymore. I think it's time to find someone new. Or, she doesn't treat me like a wife anymore. I feel our marriage is over. Now, the world thinks that way. The world talks that way. But we as Christians should never. We should never think or talk that way. We as Christians need to remind ourselves. Um, what we need to remind ourselves of is that God's love is the basis of a strong marriage. And God's love is not about feelings. I'm not saying feelings are not involved. They're not the basis for God's love. It's the commitment we made to each other on our wedding day, which began with a promise. It was a solemn vow, actually. And by the way, you think that you stood before that preacher or whoever it was that married you, and you vowed to your, 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 the person you were marrying to be loyal to them and love them and so on, what you were really doing since God created marriage and he brings people together and makes them one with each other, you were really making a solemn vow to God. I'm not saying you weren't promising your spouse how you were going to treat them. You definitely were. But first and foremost, you were making a solemn vow to God to love and be loyal to the person you were now marrying in his presence you were going to treat them with love, and kindness, and loyalty, and fidelity for the rest of your life. You see, marriage can't be based on feelings because feelings come and go, don't they? They ebb and flow depending on whatever outward circumstance you're going through at that particular moment. If your circumstance is kind of happy and things are going well, it tends to affect your marriage. It tends to cause passion to flow. There are times in your marriage when, you know, passion is flowing and it feels like you're on your honeymoon still. Then there are other times when you're going through a very serious trial. Maybe it's a, a medical condition or a financial crisis or something else. And right now all the attention is turned towards that sick child or something else. And it's drawing all your attention really from your marriage. 
Not that it should, but it does often. And at that point, your, your, your marriage feels like partners in a business. A business arrangement instead of two people in love. Marriage is going to have its ups and downs, its highs and lows. And when your passion for one another cools, that is not the time, listen, to chuck the marriage and go looking for someone new. No, that is the time you must fall back on the commitment that you made to each other when you first stood before God, family, and friends and pledged to love each other. In other words, to remain committed to each other for better or worse, in sickness and in health for the rest of your lives, whether you feel like it or not. Guys, it's the commitment, not feelings, that will bind you together and allow you to weather the storms of life, which will eventually pass. Allow me to use this as a segue into Acts 27. Turn there, if you would, quickly. But I will warn you as you are looking for Acts 27 that Acts 27 technically has nothing to do with marriage. And yet, the lessons we can glean from this passage have everything to do with marriage. And I'll show you what I mean in a second. Let me paint the background for you. After being falsely accused by the Jewish leadership of being a rabble-rouser, a troublemaker, a danger to the public peace, and then after jumping through legal hoops in Caesarea because Paul was used as a, uh, a, a political pawn, well, he as a Roman citizen had the right, and he eventually exercised it, to appeal his case to Caesar. And so now it was... Uh, Roman law, if you were a Roman citizen, you had the right to appeal your case to Caesar. It might take a couple, three years, but you had the right to do that. And so now Paul was getting a free trip to Rome, paid for by the Roman government. He was a prisoner, but he was going to plead his case before Caesar. Now, on the way, a violent storm arose. You can read the whole story. It was a violent nor'easter called Eurachlodon. Eurachlodon. And this violent storm arose, and it threatened the lives of the 275 soldiers, sailors, and prisoners that were on that ship along with Paul. The storm was horrendous, and they, were they threw out everything they could to lighten, to tackle the cargo. Everything went overboard to, to give buoyancy to the, to the ship. You only did that when you were fearing for your lives, and at this point they felt they were goners. All right. Two weeks passed. I can't even imagine that being in a violent storm tossed to and fro. How do you sleep? You can't eat. And one night, God sent an angel to appear before Paul and said, God is granted. Everybody on this ship is going to be saved. They're going to make it. However, not long after Paul shared this with the captain of the ship, and the Roman centurion in charge of the prisoners, several of the ship's crew secretly tried to jump ship. Look at verse 30. Then the sailors tried to abandon the ship. They lowered the lifeboat as though they were going to put out anchors from the front of the ship. But Paul said to the commanding officer and to the soldiers, You will all die unless the sailors stay aboard. So the soldiers cut the ropes to the lifeboat and let it drift away. At this point, they had come to realize this guy, Paul, 
He is a man of God. He knows what he's talking about. Listen to him. Now, guys, I believe Paul's words, even though not directed at marriage, express the heart of God for us today with regard to our marriages. How so? You see, just as these men found themselves in a situation where they had to stay committed to each other and work together in order to survive the storm, same is true in our marriages. Same is true in our marriages. There are times in marriage, and maybe you are going through one of those times right now as we speak. There are times in marriage where the wind is howling, the storm is raging, and you find yourself saying, I'm out of here. I'm jumping ship. I can't take this marriage one more day. But if you jump ship, know this. Not only will you be disobeying a, a solemn vow you made to God, and that is no small thing. Oh, he'll forgive me. Um, yeah. But that doesn't mean there's not consequences attached. So just understand that. The fear of the Lord is the what? Beginning of wisdom. So if you go ahead and jump ship, if you bail on your marriage, not only will you be disobedient to God by breaking the solemn promise you made to him when you married your spouse, listen, you could very well miss, possibly miss the blessing of seeing him work a miracle. You'll miss seeing him possibly take what seems to be a hopeless situation, a marriage broken beyond repair. I've heard stories you can't even believe. You could very well miss God, take a hopeless situ situation and turn it into such a miracle, such a blessing in your life that you will eventually come to realize this is in fact the person God did give me to be my spouse, my mate for the rest of my life. Someone has written a book on marriage with the award-winning title, Good Marriages Take Time, Bad Marriages Take More Time. Listen again to the Apostle's warning. If you jump ship, no one will make it. I want you to stop and think about your children, if you have any, and how this will affect them. Many children of divorce suffer the emotional damage of divorce for the rest of their lives. Not all, but many. Even to the point of suffering one or more failed marriages themselves when they become adults. Look, I'm not saying it's not going to take hard work, sacrifice, and a lot of prayer to see your marriage weather the storm, whatever the storm is you're going through. Maybe it's marital infidelity. That's quite a storm. You find out your spouse has cheated on you. That's, a, that, that's crushing. That's a train wreck in your life. But listen, with God, all things are possible. He can heal even that storm. And that's not to say that divorce isn't sometimes necessary. Uh, in cases of continual infidelity and, and or physical abuse, I've never told anybody in 41 years of marriage to divorce their spouse, ever. I came close once. We had a guy in the church who was married to a gal. She kept cheating on him and kept getting pregnant. She had five kids by different, different men. And, Claimed to be a Christian. He stuck by her side. 
he he raised those kids and I just thought Lord you must be giving them a lot of grace I don't think I could handle it they eventually moved away and then about five or six years later he came back for a visit and I asked him how his wife was doing and he said well we're divorced she got pregnant again from a different guy number six he said that was it I divorced her Sometimes divorce is necessary. I'm just saying that all too often, too many Christians, Christian couples, follow the example of the world and rush into divorce when the storm hits and things get rough instead of honoring their commitment to one another, dying to self, and listen, giving God time to work. People get so hurt they want to run. They want to bail. I understand that hurt. But how many Christians have missed out on God working a miracle because you bail? And it just doesn't apply to marriage. You bail from a hard situation, whatever it might be, and don't give time, God time to work. Like, like um, my goodness, my mind just went blank. But um, Jacob, he always ran. He never gave God time to work things out, right? He always took off. That was his M.O. And one night he wrestled with Jesus because, you know, Esau was coming. And, you know, and he wrestled with the Lord all night. Jesus finally touched his hip, threw it out of socket, and crippled him. He couldn't run anymore. Now he, had to, he was forced to stay and watch God work. He said, you can't leave me like this, Jacob. We know he was weeping. We learned that later in the Bible. He was broken, weeping. You can't leave me like this. You've you got to bless me, he said to Jesus. Jesus said, what is your name? Jacob, which means conniver, schemer, heel catcher, master of my own date, of destiny, Jacob. Your name shall no longer be called Jacob. It shall be called Israel, governed of God. Whenever God forces us to stop running or taking things into our own hands, it's not because he doesn't love us. It's because he does love us. And until we're ready to stop putting trust in ourselves and we put trust in his ability, his power, to work things out. We stop scheming and conniving in whatever situation it might be. When God removes that, we become Israel, governed of God, right? Um, now, listen, I know some of you might be, or some of you watching online, there are some who might be thinking at this point, look, I haven't jumped ship. I've only lowered the lifeboat over the side. And I'm going to give this marriage, you know, two more weeks or three more months or one more year, and then I'm going to decide what I'm going to do. Listen, if you keep an escape option open in your mind, I guarantee you will wind up using it. If you keep thinking about divorce, guys, you will eventually end up divorced. No marriage can survive a strong marital storm as long as you got one foot in the lifeboat contemplating jumping ship. Look, get rid of the lifeboat, right? 
cut the ropes, stop planning your escape, and uh, tell yourself divorce is not an option. I'm hurt, I'm angry, but I'm going to let God work a miracle here. Work a miracle here. And God can work a miracle if you trust Him, obey Him, and commit yourself totally to His will for your life. Remember, Malachi 2.16, God says, I hate divorce. It doesn't say I hate divorced people. It says I hate divorce because it hurts people I love. When God glues, and that's the word in the Hebrew, <clears throat> joins, glues two people together in marriage. I don't know if any of you guys are woodworkers or gals. These wood glues they got today are stronger than the wood they bind together. When you glue a couple pieces of wood together, if you could take some kind of machine latching onto both pieces and have it rip those pieces apart, Chunks of the other are going to wind up, you know, on the one half and holes in the other half. When God glues two people together in marriage, what God has joined, let no man do what? Divorce, tear apart. When you tear apart something God has glued together, marriage, you can do it, but it's messy. It's painful, and I personally believe, and I could be wrong, you're never going to be quite the same. My uncle, after having divorced my aunt and married a new woman, wonderful, godly woman, they got saved after. Wonderful, godly woman. His first wife was really bad. And he said to me one day, he said, Phil, after 25 years of being married to your aunt, I love her dearly, but I still regret my marriage failing. I still regret divorcing your, your first aunt. And I understood what he was saying. Again, remember God hates divorce, which means that all the power of God is at your disposal for saving your marriage, so don't jump ship. Give God time to work. Now, let me address for the rest of our time this morning the other side of the subject. It's going to get a little heavy. I saw people giving me, not the evil eye, but close. <laughs> a few. You know, they say, if you throw a rock into a pack of dogs, the one that yipes, probably the one that got hit. So guys, I'm just lobbing these principles out there. If you're, if you're going to yipe, you probably got hit by the Holy Spirit. Take it up with him. Don't blame me. But listen, because marriage is hard and because so many marriages have either failed or are in the process of failing in our country, many young people have opted to live together without getting married. In fact, last year I saw uh, a, a statistic that said for the first time in our nation's history, more young people were living together outside of marriage than had gotten married. That just shows you where we're going as a country. As I said earlier, if a marriage is going to work and stay together for the long haul, it must be built on commitment, not feelings. And yet today, many couples are seeking to escape making that commitment to each other by sidestepping marriage altogether and simply moving in with each other, living together. 
I mean, they have feelings for each other, obviously, or they wouldn't be together at all. But it isn't true love. And when I pointed this out to a couple or two over the course of my ministry, they have not appreciated that. They have not appreciated that, but it's true. Guys, again, true love is all about commitment. And that alone is the only foundation a marriage can be built upon that will allow that marriage to weather the storms of life. Listen, without the commitment, two people just living together, without the commitment, their relationship is nothing more than roommates having sex. That's all it is. They can claim they don't need a piece of paper to prove their love for each other. I've seen it. I've heard it. And certainly a piece of paper known as a marriage license will not force two people to love each other. But let me tell you this. If you don't have it, you don't really love each other either. What do you mean? If I loved a woman, I'd want to marry her and give her my name. If something ever happened to me and I had to be taken to the hospital and she shows up, I want her to be able to see me. I want her by my side and vice versa. You live with somebody, you get sick, they rush you to the hospital, and here comes this person says, you want, he or she wants to go in and be with you, and the hospital says, are you a relative? Well, not really. We live together. Well, technically, you're not a relative. In this climate, I'm not sure they're going to let you in. Or if you own things, a house or other things, and you die suddenly, they don't have any legal right to what belongs to you unless you get a will. A lot of times people don't bother to do that, make out a will. Look, there are different reasons why people just live together without getting married. We could list them. I thought about it. Not necessary. Let me just give you the basic one. The basic one. basic reason is so that they can bail on the relationship easily and quickly when either things get rough or when somebody, quote-unquote, better comes along. These are the kinds of people who love themselves more than anyone else. Commitment? Yeah, they've got commitment to, to themselves. It's all about their happiness. It's all about, you know, what, what's going to make them feel good. These are the kinds of selfish narcissists that are always looking for a better deal. And if and when it comes along, somebody comes along that is better looking or can give them more in the way of financial prosperity, they dump the current partner in favor of this new person. But they're not stupid. They're selfish, but they're not stupid. They realize the dumping, right? The dumping would be messy expensive and drawn out if they had to divorce their current partner. So it just makes more sense to live with them without getting married so as to keep the door open for a quick escape if somebody better comes along. And again, that's Hollywood's version of marriage. Turn to John 2. I want to show you something here. Again, not really something with regard to marriage, but again, wow, completely um, can be looked at 
as principles pertain to marriage. Uh, John 2, let's start with verse 23. Now, when he, Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew, I'll paraphrase, what was in the heart of man. Now, the reason Jesus didn't commit himself to these people wasn't because he didn't love them. It was solely on the basis of them not really loving him, of them not wanting to go all the way in their relationship with him. You see, they wanted to hang out with Jesus. Who wouldn't want to hang out with Jesus? I mean, it was dinner and a show. You're hungry? Kid, bring those couple of sardines and a few crackers. Multiplies, feeds thousands. At any given time, he could confront the Pharisees, put them down to bread. Hey, the Pharisees, they were so smug, arrogant, so self-righteous. And Jesus was always putting these guys down. That was fun to watch. And then, what do you say about a miracle? You know? He was always doing miracles. Jesus was a great guy to hang out with. That was the problem. He had a lot of groupies. But not all of them were true disciples. I mean, you know, it's smart to hang out with Jesus. smart to keep him close. You might need him in the future. A lot of people that believe that and why they go to church. Because, hey, if I go to church, make Jesus happy, maybe he'll bless my business. Maybe I'll make more sales contacts. That's paganism, folks. I got to come to church to appease the God, and maybe he'll bless me in return. I don't come because I just really love the Lord. I mean, people need to check their motives for why they want a relationship with Jesus. And then when they check their motives, what kind of relationship are they looking for? We would say, that they wanted to hang out with Jesus, but it wasn't a deep kind of a relationship they wanted. They wanted something, that we would say, a superficial relationship with the Lord. It's like many people, again, today, who don't want to go all the way in their commitment to Jesus. They don't want to you know, approach their relationship with Jesus for better or worse in good times and bad for the rest of their lives. Listen, as a marriage covenant demands... I mean, Jesus Christ loves people, all people, so much that he is proposing marriage to them. But without the other person accepting that proposal and making a commitment to him, it's meaningless. It means nothing. And again, that's why Jesus didn't commit himself to these people. He wants a real relationship based on genuine commitment. I mean, he already proved our, his commitment to us, right? He died for us. You can't get, that's total commitment. He died for us. And he wants the same from us. When he said, if you want to be my disciples, you got to die to self, take up your cross, and follow me, that was his way of saying, I want total commitment from you. Now look, I don't, I don't know how to say this without sounding a little irreverent. I don't mean to, to. The Lord Jesus doesn't mind a person checking him out before making a commitment to him. In fact, he actually encouraged that when he challenged potential disciples to first count the costs 
first count the cost before starting to follow him. But make no mistake about it. Jesus isn't looking for a perpetual, casual, dating relationship with you. He's looking for a relationship based on lifelong commitment. In other words, he wants to marry you. <gasps> that sounds weird. What are you talking about? It's not weird. When's the last time you read your New Testament? Everything in the New Testament points to marriage with regard to our relationship with Jesus. He's the bridegroom. We're the bride. I mean, everything in the New Testament talks about how we enter into a commitment to him, the same like the same kind of commitment we enter into with one, uh, one another, I'll get it, in marriage. But again, so many churchgoers today are satisfied with simply dating Jesus. They're not interested in taking their relationship deeper with a commitment to him, a commitment to love him, serve him and stay loyal to him no matter what life brings their way, whether it's blessings or hardship for the rest of their life, they're in it for the long haul. There's a lot of people who um, claim to have a relationship with Jesus, but they're fair weather Christians. I'm not even sure they're saved, but let's just, for the sake of argument, say, yeah, they're saved. But their whole idea of their relationship with Jesus, he's going to bless them. He's going to prosper their business. He's going to give them the nicest house in town, maybe a couple of nice uh, cars, uh, I don't know, BMWs or whatever it might be. Because that's what the TV preacher promised. And when things get a little rough and a cross shows up, they get very upset. Because that wasn't what I signed up for. I didn't sign up for suffering. I signed up for blessing. Well, then whoever signed you up, quote, unquote, wasn't giving you the true gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ means that God comes into my life and he blesses, he watches over, he provides. But he doesn't protect me from all hardships and adversities. That's why he said count the cost before you decide to follow me. We are in a war. A lot of Christians have failed to understand it. it you know, country club Christianity is very popular today. It's a big social gathering. When the Bible says that we are in a war with a very powerful enemy called the devil. Jesus has sent us out into the world to preach the good news to save those who have been taken captive by the devil to do his will. And the devil says, try it and I'm going to do what I can to bring you down, mess you up, take you out. That's warfare. And if you don't realize that, that that's what Christianity is all about, you're going to be very disappointed when, you know, Jesus isn't constantly pouring goodies into your life. M many today say they believe in Jesus. And when a person says that to me, I believe in Jesus, I always ask them, what do you, what do you mean when you say you believe in Jesus? What do you believe? Do you believe that he is the Son of God who died in the cross for your sins on the third day rose again? Yeah, that's what I believe. Well, that's great. But the devil and his demons believe that. And they're not going to heaven. 
Guys, I'm going to say some things that, hear me out. Because you might be prone to think, what is this guy teaching? This sounds like salvation by works. I don't believe in salvation by works. It's all by grace. But I want to differentiate between the kind of faith that is head knowledge that won't save and the kind that is in the heart with a commitment that is called saving faith in the Bible. There's a difference. To be saved, you must take your passive faith, your head knowledge that you learned in Sunday school and Awanas and growing up. To be saved, you must take your passive faith and bring it to the next level and make it, listen, active faith, which means that you believe to the point of commitment. You believe to the point of commitment. Let me use the kind of commitment that goes into marriage once again and how it, how it, um, and how that um, it relates to entering into a saving relationship with Jesus. Now, hear me out, because I'm trying to differentiate the two. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, is going to enter the kingdom of heaven. A lot of folks have gone to church all their lives. They believe everything I believe about Jesus. They really, I believed everything I believe about Jesus right now. I believe when I was a Roman Catholic and unsaved. You can have the right information stuffed into your brain and not be saved because it's not a commitment. Here, a person can believe, let's use marriage again, a person can believe in the beauty and validity of marriage. But unless they actually believe to the point of commitment by pledging their life to a member of the opposite sex, standing before God on their wedding day, on their wedding day and vowing to love and be loyal to that person for the rest of their life, until they do that, they haven't actually, listen, entered into marriage. No matter how much they believe in the, um, they believe in it as an institution. Again, let me say it again. There's a lot of folks that believe marriage is wonderful. It was God-ordained. It's a wonderful institution. I want to be married someday. And they believe marriage is great, but until they actually pledge their, make a solemn vow before God and to this person they're marrying, that they will love them for the rest of their life, be loyal and faithful to them, which is what the marriage vow entails. Until they actually do that, they can think marriage is the most wonderful institution in the world. But they're not actually married until they stand before God and pledge their love and loyalty to a member of the opposite sex. And guys, the same is true when we talk about Jesus and salvation. A person can believe, and many do, who Jesus is, what he did for them. But unless they take the next step and enter into a relationship with Jesus where they believe to the point of commitment, in other words, where they pledge to love him above all others, be committed to him and obedient to him for the rest of their life, not that we always measure up to that, but that's the in our hearts. I don't always faithfully obey Jesus in everything I do, but I want to. That was, the, that was the arrangement. That was the commitment I entered into with him. Until I do that, I haven't actually entered into salvation. And that's why I believe a lot of people who are going to wind, are going to wind up in hell even though they believed everything I believe about Jesus. They have head knowledge. It's all valid. It's all accurate. They're not cult members. They grew up in the church. 
but they have never gotten serious about I'm not saying they don't go to church. They like to hang out with Jesus and his people. Hey, I might need Jesus someday. So I'm going to stay on his good side. But unless you take your relationship to the next level, saving faith is all about making a commitment to Jesus like we made to one another in marriage. Guys, it's the commitment that brings about the relationship that puts you in Christ, which is what being saved is all about. That's why the Bible talks about salvation and marriage terms. Again, calling Jesus our bridegroom and Christians the bride of Christ. And I believe, you might disagree, I believe you don't become a Christian until you are willing to enter into the deepest kind of relationship with Jesus that two people can enter into the marriage relationship. Again, the problem with many churchgoers is they want to date Jesus. Like a lot of guys, they only want to date this gal. She wants to get married. He just likes being with her, maybe because she's really pretty and he likes the way people look at him when they're out in public. It's all about him. He really doesn't want to take their relationship deeper and make a commitment to her. He doesn't really want to marry her. I mean, that's what saving faith is all about. It's the commitment. I mean, here the Lord is proposing marriage to people, which is what we call salvation. And the response is, I just want to be friends. Can you, guys, what if you met a girl the most incredible woman, I'm assuming you're single. Don't be meeting anybody. You're not single. It's a different message, but don't do it. What if, as a single man, you met a woman, and you want to be married for a long time. You finally met a gal, and she was incredible. The most incredible woman, not just beautiful on the outside, beautiful on the inside. And you like to hang out with her so much you wouldn't... To, to places together and you, everything you did together you enjoyed because you had the same interests and you loved her company so much so that the day came when you planned on asking her to marry you. You set up a nice evening, candlelight dinner, and there at the table you brought out the ring and you said, I love you so much, I want to marry you. Will you marry me? And she looks at you and says, you know, I really enjoy being with you. as a. Fr I just want to be friends, though. Guys, that crushes you, doesn't it? Unfortunately, I never experienced that. But that, that would crush me, you know? Um, here Jesus, with his nail-scarred hands, is reaching out and saying, I love you. I want to marry you. I want to take care of you forever. I want you to live in my kingdom. And people say, Churchgoers, I just want to be friends, Jesus. Because they understand the commitment is involved. And they don't want to make a commitment to Jesus. They want his blessings. They want his help. They just don't want to be serious about him. Guys, as we bring this to a close, there can be no salvation without believing in Jesus to the point of commitment and receiving him as your bridegroom, as well as your Savior. Look at 
John 2 again, verses 24 and 5. We'll read this in close. Again, John 2, verse 24. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men. He had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. One of the most astonishing things about God's omniscience, that he knows everything, is that he knew me better than I knew myself. He knew every sin I was going to commit, every you know flaw that I have, and he still wanted to marry me. That's amazing. And he wants to marry every person on the face of the planet, knowing them. All things are open and naked in the eyes of him to whom we must someday give an account, right? Let me just say this. Some of you married a person you thought you knew when you were dating them. I've had more women tell me, you know, when we were dating, he was so wonderful. We talked for hours every night. Uh, he wanted to go. He wanted to go to church. He wanted to read the Bible together. I thought, what a godly man. And so, based on all of that, and I would imagine a lack of prayer, because why pray? This is a done deal. This is God. That's your mistake. So she gets married to this guy, and I've had more women say, and right after the wedding, he changed. No, he didn't change. His true colors came out, which he masked, which he hid from you to win you over. Now, I've had women say to me, you know, because he deceived me, I believe God's given me grounds to divorce him. No, no, it doesn't work like that. When you said I do, you were done. He is your husband now. Pray for him. Do what God has told you to do as a Christian wife. And we'll trust God will work on him. Maybe he'll get saved. Hopefully he will. And even though God can touch and save them, which we pray he will, if, you have, if you'd have known back then what you know right now or today, you probably wouldn't have married that person. But Jesus does know us intimately. In fact, the two times the word know appears in verses 24 and 5, it's a Greek word that means a deep, intimate knowledge. He knows us intimately. He knows what's in our hearts. No trick in Jesus. He knows us. Faults, flaws, and whatever else. And he still wanted to have a committed relationship with us in marriage. Jeremiah 31, 3. God speaking. Yes I, yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. And that goes for everybody. I knew what I was getting myself into. God is saying, I can't help myself. I love you. I love you with all my heart. I died to prove it to you. What I'm asking you is to be as committed to me as I am to you. I'm proposing marriage to you. Will you respond? Because I can't marry somebody who's just in it for the blessings they can get from me. But they don't really care about me. I mean, it just, it just gets into the question. We need to ask ourselves and maybe some others who claim to be Christians that we know in our lives, why are you following Jesus? Seriously, 
Why are you following Jesus? What kind of relationship do you want with him? Many people have a relationship with Jesus purely for what he can give them or what they can get from him, as we said earlier. There are names that we give to men and women who pretend to love others of the opposite sex, but who are only interested in them for the money or what they can get out of them. We call the men gigolos. We call the women gold diggers. And Jesus will never commit himself to somebody like that. He's looking for true commitment. He's looking for love. He is proposing marriage. And if you're willing to say, Lord, I, I want to, to be married to you. I want to commit my life to you. I want you to take over. He will tell you, I have wanted that from before you were even born. And with loving kindness, I have drawn you to me. And yes, I will marry you. Oh, but Lord, do you realize what you're getting yourself into? Yeah, I know what I'm getting myself into. And I still love you. And we'll work together to make you a better person. But I will never leave you nor forsake you. I'm in it for the long haul, <laughs> the eternal haul. May God give us grace. If you're willing to make a commitment to Jesus this morning, he is willing to make a commitment to you and has wanted to do so for many, many years. So may God give grace. If you'd like to come up afterward to pray, to make a commitment to Christ, I'd love to lead you in that prayer. Give you a Bible, whatever you need to start you on your journey. Next week, we'll continue our series, which we've entitled Lessons in True Love. So come on back. Father, we thank you for the great love wherewith you have loved us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came down willingly to die for us, that we might live with you forever. We thank you, Lord. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.